one of the most astounding facts about Christianity in the first century is not just that they survived, but they actually took over the Roman Empire. And it's really quite remarkable when we think about that. And we're going to spend the next couple of weeks looking at this question of what was it about the Christians that worked? Why did Christianity not just survive, but thrive? Now, one of the some remarkable statistics that I came across, these are from a scholar named Rodney Stark. He estimates that by about the year 40, so a few years after the life of Jesus, he reckons there was probably about a thousand Christians on the planet. Now, you've got to keep in mind that the whole Roman Empire is estimated to be about 50 million people. So not a lot of people. I mean, that's only a couple of large cities by today's standards. So a thousand Christians a few years after the life of Christ. By about the end of the first century, he estimates seven to 10,000 Christians total in about 100 or so communities, small communities spread out through this empire. By the end of the second century, maybe about 200,000 Christians in 200 to 400 communities again spread through the empire. But then in the third century, there's an explosion. He estimates that by about the year 300, there were five to six million Christians in every major city. Christianity had taken hold, and it wasn't going to be long after this that Christianity becomes the state religion. It it took over the Roman Empire. And it's a really remarkable story, and it's one that I want to explore over the next couple of weeks. What happened? What was it about Christianity that took hold and and ultimately took over the empire? A couple of other interesting facts, I think, about Christianity – uh, of all of the cults and of all of the groups that emerged and existed in the Roman Empire, all of the different cults and uh, organizations and, and whatever they were, the only one that the Romans ever tried to eradicate, the only ones the Romans ever singled out and said, we're going to try to get rid of that particular one, was Christianity. They didn't do it for any other group except for the Christians. Uh, of all of the cults and all of the groups that you could find in the Roman Empire, none of them grew at anything like the same speed of Christianity. In fact, most of them didn't really grow. They just sort of meandered along. Christianity didn't just grow, but it actually exploded. More than that, uh, of all of the um, movements of all of the groups that emerged within the Roman Empire itself, the, Christianity was the only one to actually outlive the empire. So from everything that the Roman Empire introduced, everything that happened during the Roman Empire, Christianity was the only one to actually outlive the empire itself. So again, the question is why? What was it that set the Christians apart? Uh, What was it that was clearly so appealing about their message? Um, Well, again, we're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at at some of the reasons why this was. What was it about Christianity that was so, uh, so special, so appealing? So the reason I want to look at this week, or the first key reason, is a pretty simple one, and that's they only had one God. Now, when you consider the tens of thousands of gods that everybody needed to be aware of at the very least and and worship in most cases, Christianity comes along and says, you know what, we've just got one God, Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all we, we have. And so that in itself was quite simple tens of thousands of gods or one god. I mean, that sort of efficiency in and of itself has some appeal. But more than that, this particular god actually cared. 
as opposed to the many tens of thousands of gods, this one actually cared about us. And the message of this God was a God who loved, a God who wanted the best for us, a God who actually reaches out to us and, and wants the best for each of our lives. And so that had a huge appeal. And that was something quite astounding and really quite unprecedented in certainly amongst the, the many, many pagan gods that were on offer at the time. And so I want to look at that dimension today. I want to look at that aspect about Christianity and specifically about this loving God that they offered to the world. And so to do that, we need to sort of understand ancient religion. We need to understand how the gods of the ancient world were understood and how they worked uh, and, and what that meant or, or what Christianity looks like in comparison or in contrast to that system of gods that everybody else was engaged with, everybody was dealing with. So we're going to look a bit at religion and just sort of the, the, the sort of key characteristics of what that meant for your typical person in the ancient world. So the first key thing about ancient religion, now uh, the term itself religion is probably a misnomer. It's probably the wrong way to describe what it actually was. You know, when we think about the word religion today, we apply it to Christianity, for example. And so you might say to somebody, well, I'm a Christian. And their response is, oh, so you must be a religious person. And so we, we, we associate religion with faith in a God, faith in some sort of deity, some sort of faith in a religious system. Uh, but importantly, we, we define it as something personal. Particularly in the West, religion is something that is separated ideally from the public space. And so you have religion, I don't have religion. You know, you believe in God, I don't believe in God. And it's a personal choice. And everybody has their own sort of faith systems and whatever it is they believe in and hold to, to be valuable. That just wasn't the case in the ancient world. You, did, you could not escape religion. You, you couldn't escape the gods. The gods were part of every single element of your life. Wherever you turned, wherever you looked in every minute of your life, there was a God attached to whatever it is that you were doing. And more than that, the gods were the explanation for what we can't explain, for what we can't control. And in a world before science, when there's natural phenomena happening all around you, sickness and weather systems and uh, all these things that we can understand now through scientific means... Before that understanding, how do you explain something that is unexplainable? How do you explain these devastating weather systems that destroy crops? Or how do you explain an invisible disease that wipes out a village? How, how do you explain those things without being able to see them under a microscope or see them from a satellite? There's no way to understand that. And so you can see that there's a power out there. You can see there's something forceful out there and it's quite destructive in some cases, but you don't know what else to explain it by that it must be some sort of God. It's clearly angry with us, whatever this God is, but it's there's some sort of force, there's some sort of person or being that's causing this to happen. And so for every single element of your life, there's a God attached to it. Anything that affects you, anything that impacts whatever it is that you do, 
there's something behind that. And the key thing that we have to do is to keep that thing happy. Because if that has an impact on our life, then we want the impact to be good. We want it to be uh, appropriate and we want it to be useful to us. And so whatever is attached to it, we we want that thing to be happy because if it's not, it could turn that thing against us. And so every part of your life, you'll find a God. And there's temples and there's shrines for absolutely everything. And so you can't walk through an ancient city without bumping into dozens and dozens of temples between where you live to where it is you're going. God's are absolutely everywhere. And so religion isn't something you have as a an add-on to your life. It's not something that you choose, you opt into or opt out of. The the religion or the gods are just absolutely everywhere and it's your job to be aware of them. It's your job to know where they are, to know who they are and more importantly to know what they want. Uh, Without that knowledge, without that understanding, you're going to get yourself into lots of trouble because the gods are there. You just need to make sure you know where they are. So how do you do that? How do you actually know what the gods are and who they are and, and what they want? Well, you need priests. You need people to intercede for you between yourself and the gods. And so every cult, every religion would have a priesthood attached to it. And especially the bigger cults, the big gods that we're going to meet next week, the ones that have an impact on the bigger elements like the weather or childbirth or sickness and disease, the really big, important gods need priests because we need to know what those gods want. We need somebody to hear what the gods are telling us and to be able to interpret that so that we know what to do. So we need priests in order for that to happen. So these priests are assigned or or they're they're elected every year and it's an honourable position. You actually get voted into the position. You put yourself up for election to be the priest of any cult because you want the glory and the honour that comes along with that. So it's a very important position you get to hold. So you hold that position and it's your job to listen out for the gods. Now what makes it more difficult is that it's not ever clear what the gods want. See, one of the fascinating features about Judaism and Christianity is that our God actually wrote down the things that he wants. He actually gave us texts. But that was just that was unprecedented. No one else had anything like that. So the gods were living beings who, who dwelt and existed up on Mount Olympus and they would go wherever they want, come and go as they pleased, do and act as they pleased. And you never knew from day to day where they were and what they wanted. So these priests would have to listen out. They would have to try to interpret whatever signs the gods were giving. So that might be signs in the weather. That might be signs in the way that the birds were flying today or, or, or whatever other indicators might be out there that the God is communicating to us through those signs. And so for these priests, their job was to be aware of that, to maybe cut open an animal and read the intestines of the animal and tell us what, whatever sign the God is giving us through that. So that was the job of the priests. And so a very important job and everyone has to really pay close attention to what the priests say because if we get it wrong, if we don't do what the priest is telling us to do and that God gets angry, that's not going to end well for any of us. And so the priests then are doing this interpretation, but then we also need a place to go and meet the God. We need a point of contact. 
So gods are invisible and they could be absolutely anywhere. But if we build a house for them, if we build a place for them to come and meet us, then we can go to that place and that's where the God can actually come. And so what you would set up for the gods is a sanctuary. You would dedicate a space of land for them in order, and that's their property. That's, that belongs to that particular God. And so when you go to that place, you can not only meet with that God, but you can actually be under the protection of that God as well. And so the bigger the God, the more important the God, the bigger the sanctuary, the more amount of land that you're going to give that God. So take, for example, uh, if you've ever been to or you've seen the Acropolis in, in Athens, uh, you, you would see pictures of the Parthenon at the top of that great hill. Everything within those walls, and if you can picture the walls that go around the top of that mountain, that's the sanctuary of Athena. And so everything within those walls was her territory. Everything was sacred to her, protected by her. So that means that the minute you cross the, into those walls, you're protected by Athena herself. And that's her territory. That's her property within that. Now, what that actually results in is that if you're a criminal, for example, or if you're a refuge from a town or from even your own, the town itself, you could go to this sanctuary and be protected by the God. You were untouchable. So long as you remained within the sanctuary, you were under that God's protection and nobody could come and harm you because that would be to violate the sanctuary itself. And it, you just don't want the gods to be angry with you, so you don't mess with whatever's going on in there. But everything that is happening within the sanctuary is it's sacred to that god. It's, it's protected by her or by him or whoever the god might be. But within the sanctuary itself, you'll always have a temple. And this is the most important side. This is the actual house. So imagine you've got a house and it's got a front and a backyard. It all belongs to you, but the house itself is where you live. And so for the God, they live within the temple itself. Now, the temple is a really important location, specifically because this is where the God, when the God travels to meet with us, they meet in the temple itself. The God comes into the temple. And so there'll always be a representation of the God in the temple, in, within the sanctuary of the temple. So you can enter into the temple and you can see this statue of whatever this God is, whoever this God is, and that would be the physical representation. But if the God, when the God came, they would enter into that house, into that statue, and, and obviously not make it alive because they're real, but you would get this sense that that's who the God was and that's, that gives us an idea of what this God looks like. And that's a really important aspect of ancient religion because in a way it's it's kind of humans trying to keep trying to control the gods. The gods are big and powerful and beyond our comprehension, but if we can somehow contain them, if we can somehow control, maybe even manipulate them to work for our benefit. And so you build a house for them, you you set aside a sanctuary for them. And somehow or other, we can contain them to a place that we might be able to at least approach them. If a god's invisible and it can travel around the world at fast speeds, you never know where it is, when it is, how it is, whatever it's doing. But if you can bring it to a certain place, then we can petition it. Then we can say, hey, can you do these things for us? So the temple's a very important element of that. And because it's the god's house and within the sanctuary, which is protected by the gods, it's a very protected place 
Uh, in fact, so much so that if you touch anything within the sanctuary, if you touch anything within the temple, that's going to bring upon you the wrath of the God and really the wrath of the community because you don't want to make the God unhappy. You don't want angry gods. And so don't mess with the stuff that belongs to the God. Don't get the God angry by touching its stuff. So what that what you end up finding is that these temples become treasuries for cities. So these big temples that we we're looking at, they actually are like the banks. So whatever uh, gold and whatever valuables that belong to the city actually get stored in these temples because it's the safest place you can have. It's safer than a bank because we don't have banks in the ancient world, but especially uh, it's protected by the God. No one's going to mess with the God because they, they got the whole city to answer to because if the God gets angry, and this is the key point, if the God gets angry, the God's not just going to attack you for what you've done. The whole city's going to suffer along with you. And so you've got the whole city now making sure that you don't mess with the stuff that belongs to the God. So the temple, again, extremely important in that it houses the God and that it houses the stuff that belongs to the God. But worship itself, the sacrifice itself actually took place outside the temple. It didn't happen inside the building. It happened out the front of the building. And the idea of this is that you would have the altar at the front door and you would come up and you would bring your offering, whatever the animal was, you would offer your sacrifice there as a petition almost at the front door of the God. Now, I'm sure there are practical reasons. You don't want to go start in a fire inside a building. Uh, but more than that, it's that you're standing outside so that the God can see you. The God can always look outside and they're looking out through the front door, their statues looking at you. And so you're approaching them with your sacrifice and you're doing that on the altar. And so that's a very important element of the engagement or the relationship you have with the God. Now, for every God, there's going to be very, a different type of sacrifice and there's going to be a different type of celebration. Now, the bigger gods, the more uh, important gods who control the, the big elements of our life, they get the biggest ceremonies, they get the biggest sacrifices. And so once a year, you would have these great festivals for the gods. And so there could be a couple a year, depending on how many gods we're talking about. And these festivals can last a day, a couple of days, even a couple of weeks. So your really big ones like Athena, for example, in Athens, they would have the Panathenaic Games, where every year they would come and they would celebrate and they would bring sacrifices to Athena that would last for days. And they would have games in her honor. It would be a huge party in the city. It was just a great celebration. And so for days and weeks, people would be celebrating and honoring Athena. And this was their way of effectively buying her favor. You would make sure that you would have be part of the sacrifice. And as a result of being part of that or offering her the right sacrifice, we would buy her favor for another year. It was really just buying an insurance policy. If we've, we've got her favor for the next 12 months and next year we'll be back here and we'll do the same thing again. And that's how we gain her favor. Now, what that also means on the flip side is that if you don't turn up to the festival, if you refuse to attend it, then what you're saying is, is that I don't care about that God. I don't care about that God's favor. And you're actually risking offending the God. Now, that's... 
that's a bad thing. That's not something you want to be seen to be doing because if you offend the God, it's not that the God will just come after you. The God might come after the whole city. And so now everybody is on the hook for your refusal to come to the festival. Now, we're going to talk a bit, explore this idea over a couple of weeks, but one of the key things about Christianity was that Christians don't worship at temples. And that, that emerges from their, their origins within Judaism where they would f- simply refuse to go because there is no God but one. You're not, you're not going to go up and worship in a pagan temple when you worship and honour Jesus Christ alone. And so this causes all sorts of problems for the Christians because, well, now everyone's looking at them and saying, hang on a second, you used to come to these festivals, but now that you've become a Christian, you're not going to the festivals anymore. That's a real problem. You're actually causing problems for all of us as well. And this ultimately leads to incredible persecution. And again, well, this is a story we'll talk about over the coming weeks. And so for the gods, as you might be able to tell, it's really just buying their favor. It's not a lifestyle. There's no, there's no religious community built around particular gods. There was no church of Zeus or, or church of Athena. It was just that that god is there, that god is big and powerful, and we need to know what the god wants, do the things that the god wants, and then hopefully that's enough to keep it off our backs. And what that generally boils down to is an annual festival an annual celebration for that particular God according to whatever the God's wants are for that particular year. So worship isn't a lifestyle. It's not an ongoing thing you're doing on a regular basis. It's not a constant awareness of the presence of Zeus in your life. Worship is just this God needs this. This is what we do. We've done it. God's happy. We got on with our lives. And you could spend the rest of the year and not even think much about that God because you've done what's required, that God seems to be happy because we're getting good favor according to what that God does for us, everything seems to be okay. And on the other side of that, the gods themselves don't really care much about us either. We care about them to the extent that we do what they ask us to do, they give us the right favors, but then the gods don't really concern themselves with our everyday activities either. They're not really engaged with our lives at all in fact for the most time they really don't have anything to do with us unless we do the wrong thing and the only time you really know you've done the wrong thing is if for example zeus the god of weather sends bad weather well if if we've got bad weather zeus must be offended so we must have done the wrong thing so we could go and talk to the priest say hey what have we done what do we need to do in order to appease this anger But if everything else is okay, then, you know, we've done the right thing and the God's just carrying on his business. So God's didn't actually care about us. Um, That's really just not something that ever happened. There's no concept of any sort of relationship with the gods apart from, as I say, buying the insurance policy from them. Now, the only exception to this sort of generic approach to the gods is that if, for example, you needed a specific favor. Let's say, for example, you're looking to have children and so you want the favor of a God who can meet your needs. Well, you might approach Artemis and say, hey, look, you know, we're we're about to have children or we're pregnant. We need your protection because you're the goddess of childbirth. 
And so that might be an occasion where you approach a God specifically. But for the most time, for the most part, it's just you go along with whatever the general sacrifice or ceremony might be. So that's a what we would call, quote-unquote, religion. It's not a... Uh, system as we might understand it today where I have my personal religion is Christianity or whatever it might look like and that's what I my everyday reality is continually influenced by this religious community and belief that I have it's just we live in a world full of gods who are here well before us and who will be here well after us and if we want to live a life in this world that is not in terrible circumstances well then we need to keep the gods happy so long as we do that our life will be at least mostly unhindered unencumbered by these particular gods so it's a very pragmatic sort of understanding of of how we get through life so who are the gods we're going to meet some of them specifically next week but some of the characteristics of these gods again that differ them from what we might understand if certainly if we've come sort of from that judeo-christian background well, the Olympian gods are the important ones. The Olympian gods are the ones that live up on Mount Olympus. They're, they're the chief gods and goddesses that control the major events and circumstances of our lives. Now, the gods are, well, if you've seen statues of gods, and they're very easy to see, it's just, just Google some of their names and you'll see plenty of statues of them. And the idea of these statues is it's our way of trying to humanize these forces that we can't otherwise see and explain we see the weather we know that the weather's powerful but if we can somehow try to contain the force behind it somehow understand it conceptualize it on our terms then perhaps we can deal with it a little bit easier it's not so out of our control out of our hands and so some characteristics of who these gods are well, they're born immortal, which seems like a contradiction of terms, but they're born and they can never die again. And so they remain immortal. You can't kill these gods. Now, they, they have knowledge. They're very intelligent. They surpass certainly human knowledge, but they're not omniscient. They don't know everything. They can learn. They know a lot, but they still don't know absolutely everything. Uh, they can travel long distances in an instant. In the snap of a finger, they can travel across the world, but they're not omnipresent. And so they can turn up in the temple, in, in their temple in one country and then in another, in another country on the same day, but they can't be everywhere at the same time. They're invisible, uh, and so we can't obviously see them, but they can also appear in human form at certain times. And so, in fact, at times, if you read Homer, they can even enter into people and take control of a person for a period of time. They can suffer wounds and pain, but they cannot die. And they, they sort of bleed this sort of ooze, this like this green ooze, according to Homer. Um, it's not quite like normal human blood. And very importantly, and this is something we maybe don't think about, is that they're very sexual beings, I mean, we're talking about some horrifically disgusting, incestuous sexual beings. And it's not uncommon at all for gods to have sexual relationships with human beings. Uh, the offspring of these humans are sort of half god, half man, and they call them heroes in the Greek. And again, we'll talk about different examples of these, but one that comes to mind is uh, the god Mars, who raped the princess of Alba Longa, 
and she gave birth to twins, Romulus and Remus, and Romulus, of course, becomes the founder of Rome. And so these are common stories that are amongst as the, the Greek mythology as well. So the characteristics are they're, they're certainly not human, but they're much closer to humans than what we might understand about our God, about Yahweh. Uh, it's, it's a different sort of approach understanding to, to these gods. And so when Christianity entered into this space, when these Christians were coming along preaching Jesus Christ, how did it compare? What was different about Christianity compared to what they had been used to for as far, as, as far back as humans could possibly remember? Well, for a start, Christianity, it kind of looked like a religion. Uh, there, there was sort of a cult element around that. And I'm not saying Christianity is a cult. Some of you might think it is. But uh, when I say the word cult, I'm talking about the Latin word cultus, which refers to the practices attached to that particular god. And so there would be a cult for Zeus and there'd be a cult for Athena or Artemis. And the cult was whatever was unique to that particular god, the unique requirements and and worship and sacrifices that went along with that. So when I say a cult of Christianity, I'm talking about the practices that were attached to Jesus Christ. And so there was an element of that, a religious element to Christianity in that they serve, they live to please a God. And that was always the goal, wasn't it? It was always the goal of the people to please whoever the God was and live in a way that keeps them happy and keeps them off our back. And so that certainly comes through in Christianity, living to please God. And particularly amongst the Jews, there was the, the law and the requirements that go along with Torah. There was certainly a cultish element to that. And so there was something that they could understand of it. They, they, we were all talking about gods and pleasing gods and keeping gods happy. We can get that part of it, certainly. But then everything apart from that was really quite unique, really quite contrary to how any, anyone might have understood what religion was. Because for everybody, religion stopped there. There's a God the God has requirements, we do the requirements, the God's happy, everybody's happy, we get on with our lives. But the Christians started there and then took it to a whole new level. Well, for a start, they would have actually seemed to be atheists. So on the one hand, they talk about a God and they we can recognize that they have a God and believe in a God. But on the other hand, you're atheists. You don't have a temple. There's no building, there's no structure that we can point to and say that's where the Christians go. We have all of these temples and every second building in the ancient world is a temple, but you don't have that. You know, you talk about temples being your bodies, your physical bodies. Well, that's just bizarre. We don't get that. And you don't do sacrifices. We, we never see you at the temple that you don't have sacrificing an animal the way that we do. There's, no, there's nothing like that. You've never killed any animal at all on behalf of your God. So, again, where is the religion? Where's the, the cult element that we're so familiar with? They don't have a priesthood. There's no elite priestly class. And the thing to keep in mind is that to be a priest in the ancient world, you have to be rich. You have to be from the elite class because only you can afford 
well, not only just to work for free for a year because you don't get paid for the job, you do it voluntarily, but you then have to pay for the festivals. Someone has to pay for all of the sacrifices and, and everything that's required to keep that God happy. And so some that money's got to come from somewhere. Well, that's going to come from the pocket of the priest. Well, that's going to cost a lot of money. And so priesthoods are always filled by wealthy elite people. But the Christians don't even have that. They don't even have a priesthood. Everybody does everything. Their priesthood seems to be everybody in the room. Everyone has a part to play. It's not one elite person who takes control and calls all the shots. So again, you don't have a priesthood. You're kind of a religion, but in so many more ways, you're really not. And not like us, you don't have an annual ritual. We, we have an annual ritual for our God. At the very least, we can point to that annual celebration and say, that's what we do for this God. You don't have that. You meet every week. And you seem to talk about your God every day. It's not constrained to an annual event. It's a regular part of your everyday life. And so in a sense, you're religious, but in so many more ways, you're, it's a religion that we have no familiarity with. More than that, you're monotheists. There's only one God in your religion. And as much as that's strange, there's almost an appeal to that as well. See, there's tens of thousands of gods in the Greek pantheon, and you really just never know who they all are and what they're all responsible for. And for the most part, things go on in your life and you just don't even know which God is attached to it. You Christians come along and say, no, there's just one God. He created all of it. He sustains all of it. He holds it all together and he's taking care of all of it. Well, if nothing else, that's just really easy. I mean, that sort of efficiency, I mean, you think about your mobile phone. I mean, what's one of the great appeals of having a smartphone is that you can put everything on it. You don't have to carry 50 other things. You've got one thing and it does all of it for you. That's just a lot easier. That's just so much easier than having to carry around a bag full of stuff to do the same job. And so this idea of a single God who takes who, whose whole repertoire is absolutely every aspect of your life, that really does have some strong appeal. Uh, what's different about you Christians as well is that you really genuinely live to please this God. See, we... We live to keep the God happy. We, or put another way, we live to not make the God angry. But you Christians, you genuinely live to please this God. You really want to enter into a happy relationship with, with whoever this God is. And so it's not just that you're doing something for once a year. Paul talks about an, a whole life of sacrifice, Romans 12.1 it's our whole everyday existence is a continual sacrifice to this God. It's not, well, I killed uh, a bull to, to satisfy Athena. No, no, no. It's I die every day to myself in order to please this God, to live a life pleasing to this God. You guys just take this thing to the, to the absolute next level. Another key difference of Christianity is that they were bookish. They, they actually had a book. You know, we worship thousands of gods who change their minds on a whim. We never know from day to day what these gods want. And it changes every day. And so we're having to read 
the flight path of a bird or we're having to read the intestines of an animal or whatever the latest weather pattern is to try to maybe guess, interpret somehow what the gods want. And even then it's only guesswork because, I mean, what does the weather really tell you? What does the flight path of a bird really tell you? Um, There's plenty of opportunities to get that wrong. But see, the Christians come along and the Jews come along as well and say, hey, you know, no, no, God, God told us what he wanted, gave us 10 simple rules. He said, just do these 10 things and it's all it's gonna be it's gonna go well for you. And so this God actually wrote it down. He actually gave us scripture and said, Hey, this is what I want. Do this. I'll never change my mind. And if I do, I'll let you know. Well, if nothing else, that gives you some assurance. That makes it really, really clear what this God wants. This is one God who's powerful over all things, who created all things, who is just one God for everything. And it's really clear from him what he wants. It's really obvious. God says, these are the things I want you to do. Do those things and all will go well. So that's a huge appeal. That in and of itself is one of the key reasons that Christianity had such an appeal in the Gentile world because it was just so much simpler and so much clearer what this God wanted from us. But then even more importantly than that, this God was moral. Now, again, we're going to meet some gods next week and the week after, and we're going to see some pretty horrible stories. I mean, these gods were absolutely atrocious. I mean, just it was good that these gods didn't say to us, you must be holy, because they would be utterly hypocritical. And probably a key difference really between our God and the other thousands of gods is that those thousands of gods didn't care about our morality either. They certainly didn't care about their own, but they really didn't care about ours. And so you could be the absolute worst person on the planet, but so long as you do the right sacrifice, you'll get the favor of that God because the gods don't care about your morality. They just, they'll do their thing, we'll do our thing. And the only, the only point of connection is do the one thing they ask us to do. If we don't do it, it's all going to end badly for us. But apart from that, just carry on however you please. This other God over here, though, he's totally, he's a different entity. He is a moral God. He's a good God. He's a holy God. And he expects us to be holy as well. And so what that creates, that holiness creates a community of believers around that God who themselves are holy, ideally, but who are holy. And so this community is reflective of a good God, which creates good people people that you want to be around, people that are loving, people that are trustworthy, people that are caring because they reflect the character of their God. And so this is a whole different thing. It's not just that we have a good God, but we have a community that reflects that good God. And that in and of itself is very appealing, not just back then, but today as well. And even more important than that, perhaps, this God is relational. Again, Gods don't care about you. They have no desire to have relationship with you. They only care about themselves. They have relationship with other gods because humans are below them. Humans are not gods and so therefore we don't relate to them because they're not us. They relate to us uh, really just not at all. It's just not something that they do because, well, why would they? We're below them. This god, on the other hand, wants personal relationship. This God reached out to us. This God 
wants to walk beside us, wants to be with us and wants us to be with him. He wants us to talk to him. He wants to talk to us. He cares for us. He wants the best for us. Again, put that in comparison to the other gods that that were on offer. This is unprecedented. This is unheard of to have this kind of living everyday relationship with a God who is a good God, who is a caring God, and who is a powerful God. Put all of this together and we've got a really potent, a very appealing package for this world. And then even more than that, perhaps, this is a loving God. This, this word agape, if you're a Christian, you would have heard it many, many times in many, many sermons. But this word agape was really quite a rare term. It really didn't turn up much in the ancient world because there was really no context for it. There was no sense of this sacrificial love that we talk about when we think of the word agape. But let me read a great, great quote for you that talks about the, the, the love and the loving nature of this God. Quote is this, says, The notion that there is one true and transcendent God and that this God loves the world may have become subsequently so much a familiar notion, whether or not it is actively affirmed, that we cannot easily realize how utterly strange, even ridiculous it was in the Roman era. Indeed, the emphasis on God's love and the appeal for an answering love ethic characterizing Christian conduct comprise something distinctive. We simply do not know of any other Roman-era religious group in which love played this important role in discourse or behavioral teaching. And so this idea of God is love, we just so much take it for granted because we've got this sort of very Christianized culture now that this idea of love is just, we don't even think about it anymore. It's just part of who we are. But take it back to the first century where there's no concept of that, certainly within any religious context. For these guys to come along and say, we have this God who loves us with an agape love. What are you even talking about? We can't conceive of that. That is absolutely astounding to us. And so for these believers, these Christian believers, that's what they came with. That's what they were presenting. This was an alternative God that no one could have has ever conceived of in any way, shape, or form prior to that. And so when Jesus sends out his disciples, he, he didn't go out with all of these long lists of instructions of all the different things they have to do and all the things they have to know about the God to be able to give a good account for the sort of God that they're presenting. He says, no, no, no. Now, it's really simple. You're going out to represent your God, and the God himself is the attraction. The God himself is the one that you're bringing and is the one that is going to appeal to the people. And so the way you're going to do that, it's really, really simple. He says to them here in John 13, he says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. The Christians went out and said, hey, you know what? We worship this particular God and let me show you what he looks like. And then they would just love. And through that, people came, people joined, people became Christians because this is like nothing we've ever seen before. And so to finish up, our first reason I suggest for Christianity taking hold and flourishing was that they have one God and they had a loving God. And in a world that had never conceived of anything like that, that appeal was absolutely remarkable. 
And the result of that was, well, the statistics we saw before. Within three centuries, going from a 1,000 Christians to five or six million Christians. Unprecedented. Nothing like that had ever happened before. And yet it did for Christians, again, for this, amongst other reasons. Well, anyway, over the next couple of weeks, we'll look at a few other reasons uh, for the growth of Christianity. And I hope this, I hope this has been helpful. Uh, join me again next week and we'll carry on the conversation. I'll see you then. Thank you.